Hello again, and welcome to another episode of Marketing Revisited. My name is Liam Maroney, I am your host, and on this podcast, I talk to the smartest marketers I know, one function at a time, to learn what's new, what's changed, and what you need to leave behind to be a better marketer. And today, we revisited marketing leadership. I spoke to Kathleen Booth, the SVP of marketing at Tradeswell. She's also a speaker, a podcast host, a startup advisor, and just an all-around amazing marketing leader. It was a great conversation. I hope you enjoy. Take a listen. Kathleen, welcome to the show. It is an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for joining. Hey, Liam. I'm so excited we're doing this. I know. Me too. Me too. Um, So to give you a bit of a context setting, so we want to revisit marketing leadership. And I've been thinking about this, and I think We've seen a lot. You talk about it a lot. I think it's been a big conversation about just how much B2B marketing has changed. And we talk about it very much from a tactical level of like, oh, well, lead generation doesn't work anymore. Brand is important. And when you start to think about these, it keeps coming back to the same point for me, which is that a lot of this happens at a leadership level. How do you build marketing correctly? How do you position marketing internally the right way? And how do we actually make sure that marketing is focused on the right things and is doing the right things? And so that's kind of how I wanted to frame up this conversation. And I think to start it really, you know, I wanted to get your thought and to see how you think about marketing's role today within particularly B2B SaaS organizations. Like what exactly is its primary function? And how do you stack rank that? Like if you're coming in from scratch, marketing is a brand new entity. What is its role going for, like from day one and how do you build that outwards? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question and it's something that is pretty timely because the place that I'm working now, I started on January 1st and it wasn't like we were a brand new organization, but we really didn't have a lot of marketing built out. And so in some respects, I was starting from ground zero. And, um, and what I did was I approached it uh, by starting the conversation before I even began to work here. And I met with the CEO before I accepted the job and I presented to him, look, this is how I think about marketing. And, and cause he had asked me, what would it take to get you to say yes, to take this role? And I said a lot of things, one of which was, I only want to work someplace where I'm going to be given the ability to do marketing the way I believe it should be done. And, and I want to work with someone who, who understands and appreciates the way I think about marketing because it's not necessarily traditional. And so in the interview, I laid out for him how I think about it, which the abridged version is sort of along the lines of, you know, when I first started in marketing and when I first built my agency many years ago, it was all about like everybody was saying, and I was saying, you know, oh, when people need something, they go to Google and they ask their question and that's where they find their answers. And it certainly still happens, but with B2B particularly, a lot has changed. And it's really because of, of the flourishing of so many communities. Um, that process was always happening, but it accelerated during COVID, I think because we were stuck at home and we craved places where we could meet our peers and learn from them. And so this community movement, uh, was catalyzed by COVID. And as a result, what used to be, oh, we go to Google to learn and find answers to our problems is now we go into our communities, our networks to learn and find answers to our problems. And, um, and so when I met with Paul, the CEO here, I sat down with him and I said, look, this is the, the deal. Um, 
you know, when when I'm at, as a as a marketing leader, when I need to buy new software, I go into my networks and I say, hey, what software are you using for X, Y, and Z? And I'm given three to five company names. And I don't go to Google and Google the software category. I go to Google and I type in the names of those companies and then I go directly to their websites just to make sure that they meet my needs. And so the game of marketing has really changed from primarily a game of trying to be found in search engines and creating the 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 impetus for people to go do that search in the first place to being the name that gets mentioned in the network or the private community and getting an at-bat and then being able to like follow through on that at-bat. So that has a massive impl- implication for how we go about doing marketing. And so so to get back to your question, like I think I came in and as a leader, you you have to really start from that place of like, am I going somewhere where where the organization supports how I think about marketing? Because if I hadn't done that and if, if I'd come into a company that wanted to do marketing the traditional way, it would have set me up for failure. And so that's, I think, really about building a strong foundation, getting aligned, having a common language and a common framework for how you approach marketing. And then from there, there's so much you can do to like put together programs and strategies that support that. You know, something you said really stuck with me, which is, is that when you're having those conversations, you're talking about like, this is the type of marketer that I am, the, my philosophy of marketing. And we don't talk very much about that. Like, I think, you know, people like, you know, Dave Gerhardt says all the time, like life's too short to work for a CEO doesn't get marketing, but getting marketing is one thing. Like, I think you're right. There's the first component, which is I want to join an organization that supports and empowers marketing. But then there's also the, am I philosophically aligned with the kind of marketing that you actually want out of this company? And I had a conversation with this in, on LinkedIn the other day where I was saying I once interviewed for a job and I think I was I was trying to convince, the CEO was trying to convince me and I was trying to convince him to take the position. And you know, I said to him, like, I just want to make sure I'm the right fit for your organization. And he asked me, like, he said, like, well, we need to change. All these things need to be done. That's why we're bringing you in. And I never asked him, like, what level of change are you comfortable with? Yeah. Like, what, what level of boldness do you want? How provocative are you willing to be? And I think, you know, we there are different types of marketers and they have very different philosophies. And like, you're obviously on the more progressive end of it, which is now the sort of brand is important. Community engagement is important. I mean, like, do you think that, do you think, I guess, do you think that's how b2b marketing should go as an entire community or do you think there are actually different types of marketing leaders that work for certain types of organizations and they that that philosophy is okay it's just not the right fit i mean i i don't want to sit here and tell anybody else what to do because the reality is whatever works is what you should do right like there isn't i don't I don't know. I, I'm going to go so far as to say I don't think there's one answer to how you should do marketing. I just know that for what I'm trying to do and for what I've witnessed, this approach that I described is the one that is the most effective right now. And and it, it's also, I think, has the advantage of being, you know, very insulated from things like algorithm changes and platform changes and privacy rules and all these these changing dynamics that are really impacting our industry. And if you if you build your marketing around some of the more traditional approaches, um, which it's not to say you shouldn't do them at all, right? Like I'm not here saying don't do SEO, don't do organic content. Like I still believe in those things and they have their place in the mix. But I think mar- good marketing is all about staying focused, right? Good marketing leaders 
are all about focus and, and keeping their eyes on the thing that's going to move the needle. And at the end of the day, to me, the thing that will move the needle the most is becoming the most known, liked, and trusted brand in your space, right? And that's very easy to say, but very kind of nebulous as a concept. What does it mean to be the most known, liked, and trusted brand? Those are the brands that are getting mentioned in communities. And so that has to do not just with having a really good product and really good content. It, it, there's something a little bit less tangible that goes into that, making that magical, right? Liked and trusted. Um, known, known is one thing. You could paper the internet with ads and be known. That's not enough. Being liked and being trusted are the two other components to that. And that's where you do, you have to think about marketing as a mix of things like classic demand generation and product marketing. Um, and then also this, this ba basket of brand that can be hard to define, hard to measure, but so, so important because it's the part that relates to brand that's going to have the biggest impact on the liked and trusted part of the equation. I think that's such a nice way of putting it. And actually you mentioned focus. And when you think about focusing on the right things, like marketing, and I've certainly found this, it gets asked to do a lot. And sometimes you can lean into things because you are, you know, especially when you come into a new organization, there are, there is a lot that, especially in startups that you look around and you go, oh, that, that needs to be better. But marketing also gets asked to do a lot of things like employer branding and investor relations and even all of those different things that are all important to running a business. But how do you balance making sure that you're focusing on that liked and trusted aspect and saying no and being comfortable and saying like, we're not going to, we're only going to help to this degree. Like, how do you, how do you protect marketing's time to keep focused on the right mission? Yeah. I mean, uh, the reality of marketing is that there are always going to be like, I'll call them side projects. And I have one right now, right? Uh, my OKRs for this quarter, my objectives and key results all have to do with like new customer acquisition because of the stage that this company is at and because of where we are with product releases and things along those lines. But we have a new product release that's not that has nothing to do with those OKRs. And I still have to make that release a success, right? And th this is vintage marketing challenge where everybody in the organization agrees on certain OKRs, but yeah, and, that, and, and then there's still these other passion projects. So I kind of unofficially plan for 80% of my team's time to be focused on the OKRs that we have and to be to really passionately guarding that 80% of our time and not letting the team get distracted and then building in 20% of their time for these things that will inevitably crop up because like I don't know a single marketing leader that doesn't have one of these and it just it's the nature of business like it's not possible I don't think in this day and age to put a plan together for even three months and fully account for everything that's going to happen in that time period especially if you live in the startup world heck you know it can be hard to plan out 30 days sometimes <laughs> but uh but we do it but yeah so in my head it's like I know going in that 80 percent of our time needs to be sacrosanct and laser focused on the OKRs and the other 20 we'll play around and figure out how to make it happen do you have any recommendations on internal education to make sure that you know especially with other departments they don't feel like well 20% of marketing's time is going to be focused on this. We're still going to help with these things, but like our mission is X, like how early in and how do you make sure you get that message across to the other teams? Yeah, I, it's all about communication. You know, I think when we set OKRs uh, as a 
as a marketing leader, I'm involved in that process at the leadership team level. And, um, you know, there's trade-offs involved and you have to talk through those. And this, this is true for every team in the company. Um, but when we set our OKRs, you know, I remember having a conversation and saying, look, um, we are going to say no to a lot of things. Like, for example, um, my OKRs right now, like I said, they're around customer acquisition and a very particular type of customer that is very product-led growth related. And so I remember saying to the leadership team, I am not going to put any of my team's energy into this enterprise ABM motion that we probably need to do because we are going after those customers. But right now, that is not what our OKRs are focused on. So next quarter, if the OKRs are, you know, relate to that, we'll do it then. But we can we can like allow the sales team to pick up the slack on that because they have OKRs relating to that, whereas marketing needs to be focused on one thing. I think you just need to say that and say it early and say it often and remind people. And you're going to get the same kind of pushback. Like my product team right now is totally focused on several product launches that we have to get out the door by April 27th for an event we're sponsoring. And they're saying no to my team a lot right now, as they should, you know. And so I think you have to build an organizational culture where that's acceptable. And that starts from the leadership, right? Um, and setting that example and telling your team, like as I tell my team this all the time. The other day, somebody on my team was like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we did, if we turned on the chat bot on our website? And I was like, it would be cool. Is that going to help you accomplish your OKRs? If the answer is no, then put it in your backlog or your par idea parking lot and we'll talk about it next quarter. That's it. I love that way. It's very much like a product release type Jira backlog kind of an yeah. idea of way of working. Yeah. And we do run modified agile here. So you'll probably hear me using this. Makes sense. Yeah. I've been on those marketing teams. Uh, the first time I was on an agile style marketing team, it was the most efficient we ever felt. Um, how do you, in that world particularly, how do you still leave room for creativity and risk-taking and like moonshot ideas? Um, it's a really good question. I think there's different buckets of creativity and moonshot and there's the creative risk-taking ideas that feed into helping you accomplish your OKRs. And I'm the kind of leader who's always like, hey, go for it. If you think it's going to work, do it. But if you, you do it fast and if it's not working, stop immediately and move on, right? Like I like empowering my team to do it. And that, and to be able to do that, you have to make sure you're hiring people that you trust to, to see those opportunities and to execute on them. Um, and then there's the kinds of creative moonshot opportunities that have nothing to do with your OKRs. You know, and those are the ones where you got to really think hard. Um, I, I am generally um, pretty skeptical of things like that if they're going to be a distraction. Um, and because they're so easy to do as a marketer, it's so easy to fall victim to shiny penny syndrome. And, um, you know, and, and so there's a couple ways of answering that. It's either... Is it worth the risk? In which case, let's use that 20% of our time, recognizing though that if something comes to us from outside of our team, we're eating into the 20% of our time that we preserve for these experiments. Um, or, you know, I'm not afraid to say to somebody, look, I don't think we should do it. But if you believe in it that much, go do it on your own time. Yeah. You know, and if somebody really wants it, they'll do it. Yeah, I like that. And I think in startups, that promotes a certain type of innovation anyway. Yeah, I've never forgotten um, the story that was told to me by Pete Caputa, who is now the CEO of Databox. 
but he um, used to be with HubSpot and he was actually the person who created their partner channel program, which I owned a partner agency for many years. So I got to know him and he tells the story that in the early days, that's exactly what Brian Halligan said to him about a partner program. They weren't sold on the idea and he passionately believed it should be a thing. And so Halligan said to him, go build it on your nights and weekends and show me that you can get some traction with it. And if it works, then we'll throw resources behind it and make time for it. And he did that and it wound up being a massive driver of HubSpot's success. So speaking of different version of that, it feels like now brand is kind of falling into that category where demand gen is kind of owning brand a little bit, or at least certainly like the, the forms that Chris Walker talks about. And like, we're doing much more like brand drives demand. You don't often hear about brand as a defined function within B2B marketing teams, at least certainly not unless they're very large teams. How do you think about hiring for that, building that out? Like, where does it live now? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. And I'm, I very much have been an early stage head of marketing. So I tend to come in at Series A uh, companies where the teams are small and there's not anybody who owns brand other than me, right? Now there's owning brand and then there's working on brand and having responsibility for it. And I actually look at brand as being something that is very cross-cutting and, and every role should have some responsibility for. And so just like when I interviewed here, I presented to the CEO my approach to marketing. I took that exact same presentation. And when I onboard new hires, I run them through it because I want everybody from the top to the bottom all on the same page about how we think about marketing. And so I walk every person on my team through this notion of conversations happening in communities and and peer-to-peer networks, et cetera, and why brand plays such an important part in in positioning you as a company to have those opportunities to get the at-bats, to generate demand. And so everybody is is educated on that. And and I, you know, I expect everybody to embrace that and and weave it into how they do their job. That's an interesting way of looking at it. And it's one that I've certainly always struggled with, with this idea that if no one specifically owns brand, then no one owns brand at all. And it like, cause it, it tends, especially in this format, like it, it doesn't find its way into the OKRs because it's kind of an always present thing. It's more about a mindset of like, as I'm creating content, am I creating it with the community engagement in mind, as opposed to what I, I know I've struggled with. And I think is all the conversations I see on LinkedIn, there's this, how do you not get led by your metrics and your dashboard and you start to skew your thinking towards near-term impact at the expense of long-term brand? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I want to answer that in two ways. One is the whole, if no one owns it, if everyone owns it, no one owns it. Um, I mean, I definitely own it for sure. We're a team of five full-time and then we have a number of external contractors. Um, and the way that I look at everyone has responsibility is, you know, when you think about communities and peer-to-peer networks, there are a lot of them. Like we sell into e-commerce and there are, there's LinkedIn, there's Twitter, D2C companies are big on Twitter. There's a ton of Slack groups. There's Discord channels. Like one person can't own participating in all of that and can't own getting results from all of that. So like one way that I work with my team is not just how are you going to incorporate brand into your work product, um, but how are you personally going to shoulder some of the burden of having a, a having trades well build a meaningful presence in these communities? And so 
Like I have one person on my team who's not really into LinkedIn, but she's very interested in participating in Slack or Discord communities. So like she's going to run point on those, which is not to say nobody else can participate. But like ultimately, if there's a conversation happening in those particular communities, we've agreed as a team that she's going to be the one to flag it and respond or make sure that we get a response. Just like there's other folks on my team who are very interested in Twitter or LinkedIn. And, you know, you got to find the, the places where people are passionate. But like, to me, that's one way of really distributing responsibility. And, and I think that, you know, you mentioned Refine Labs, and I think they do a good job of this. Their team is very engaged in social and everybody's doing it in different ways. But you can see that everybody really has some degree of ownership for building that brand through their personal involvement. And that's very much what I'm trying to do here is, is democratize the ownership of participation in communities and networks so that every one of us feels empowered to go and, and be that flag bearer for Tradeswell. Um, yeah, that, that's but, a really, it's a, it does. It's a really good point actually you make because I was reading one of the posts from someone at Refine Labs who was giving the like, hey, here's what it's like to work here type thing. And empowered was the word that kept coming up. It's not, you have to post just because Chris tends to be a heavy poster himself, but you are encouraged to, you're empowered to, and of course it should be in your authentic point of view. We're not all supposed to parrot and sort of mimic. And I think that's actually a big struggle. Like we just right now brought on everyone's social because we wanted to do employee engagement and advocacy and things like that. And, you know, a lot of the, the education was on, like, it is not the company's job to say, this is how you're supposed to speak on LinkedIn. Here is a script, say exactly this. It's, we need to give you the tools but also the freedom to make sure that you can actually do it yourself. Otherwise it's not authentic and it doesn't work. Yeah. In fact, that's the conversation I have with my team. And we start, we start the conversation about like, how are you going to participate by actually having a conversation around what their personal goals are for their career. And so my first one-on-one -on -one with everyone is always like, let's not talk about work yet. Let's talk about you. Like personally, what are your goals in life? What are your goals for, your, for how you want your career to evolve? What are you interested in and passionate about? What do you enjoy? And how can, how can I help you achieve those things, um, both through the work you're doing here at Tradeswell, but also, you know, through building your own brand? Because I, I do passionately believe that that's an asset to anybody in their career. Um, you know, and, and again, you don't force it on anyone, but if you can really figure out what, what makes people tick, and what they enjoy and what their goals are, then, you know, to me, when I meet with them, the first thing is, look, 90% of what you post shouldn't be promoting anything tradeswell related. Like you should be building your own brand about the things that you care about. And if it happens to intersect with what we do, fine, but it doesn't need to. But then when we do have something we really need to promote every now and then, then you've built an audience and you will have a receptive audience for hearing more about the things that Tradeswall is is needing to get out there. And that's how I approach my own social too, by the way. Like I don't post about us a lot. Uh, and if I did, nobody <laughs> would want to interact with me, right? <laughs> like it's not about that. It's about you have to earn people's, you have to earn your relationships and you have to nurture them. And it's like anything. It's like a friendship. And every now and then, if you need to call in a favor or, or if you need to be a little self-promotional, if you've earned that right, then people are receptive to it. And speaking of posting, it's a good segue because you wrote a really good post, which was around if someone wants to get through to you in an interview, they need to answer the question of, well, what oh marketing God. do you like? What do Did you read? We're up a hornet's nest or what? <laughs> 
And I think, you know, like, I, I love that you talk about being this lifelong learner and you're always sort of like consuming information and learning. And I think it's surprising how rare that actually is, certainly as a marketing leader. And I know I, I've said this, I still cringe when I think about this. I was talking to a, a founder of a company one time when I was potentially uh, being interviewed for a job. And I think I told him, like, he said, like, like, what kind of a leader are you? And I said, like, oh, well, I'm a demand gen type. So I skew this way. And this is how I see the world. And then I realized that, like, I, I don't want to be that boxed in. Like, I want to be much more fluid and I want to be open to things. So I tend to try and learn from non-marketing sources. But it's still very rare for a CMO to not come in and say, like, I am here because I am an expert. I have this backlog of experience. I've done all these things. I know what I'm talking about. But you come in with a sense of humility and there's the, I'm still learning, I'm looking around. I guess the first question is, why is it so rare? Like, why do we hyper fixate on like, I, I know what I know and I don't need to know anything else? Yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't know how rare it is. I can't speak to that. I, and for me, I don't know if it's a sense of humility or just a really strong case of imposter syndrome that I, <laughs> that I kind of like harness and channel into learning. Cause I always like the thing that gives me the most anxiety is feeling like I'm making a fool of myself or I don't know what I'm talking about. Like, and I don't know why that's such a thing. I know, I know a lot of people feel the same way though. And so I've definitely learned to just accept the fact that that's a part of my personality. Um, you know, to go back to my post, um, I'll start with that. So I had said the quickest way to fill an, a market, an interview with me for a marketing job is when I ask you, like, what's your favorite marketing book, podcast, blog, whatever, to not have a good answer. It was very interesting, the responses I got. Half the people were like, amen, I totally agree. And the other half were like, this is the most horrible post ever because <laughs> if we, we, we should go, we should be looking for people who can write the book, not the people who are reading it. And I, and whatever, it is what it is. But I don't think people actually really read closely what I wrote, because what I wrote is to not have a good answer. It wasn't to not be able to say the book or the blog or the podcast. It was to not have a good answer, which was really about to not have a good answer about how you're continuing to learn. And if you're continuing to learn by doing experiments on the job, great. That's a good answer. Like, I think Chris Walker wrote back and was like, I would fail your interview. And I'm like, no, you wouldn't, because you're answer is like his answer was I'm experimenting on the job. Great. That's a good answer, right? You know, I'm not looking for somebody who's just going to tell me what I want to hear. I'm looking for somebody who's going to prove to me that they're not sitting on their laurels and just running their marketing career off of what they were taught five years ago. And so I, I actually think it's not unusual for marketing leaders to have the mindset I do. I think everybody just learns in different ways, honestly, and that's fine. However you learn is great for you, but to be successful in any job, not just marketing, you need to have that hunger to continuously learn because the world we live in isn't static. And certainly with marketing, um, you know, and I don't want to say more so than other things, but it feels like it sometimes it changes constantly. And a lot of that changes out of our is out of our hands. And so I personally do enjoy learning from a lot of sources like it was funny on my post. A lot of people were like, I don't look at books. Books are stale. And I, I was like, I don't share your disdain for books personally. Like there are lots of books that have taught me lots of great things. And I, I also am kind of of the belief that it's always a red flag when somebody says like, this is never a good source or that you should never look at X. Like absolutes along those lines are dangerous. They lead to I think, dangerous thinking and assumptions. And so I'm always open to reading books and listening to people's podcasts and 
reading blogs and, you know, and I learn a ton from my network and that my number one learning source is my podcast. But to go back to your original question, I think the perception is that there are some types of marketing leaders that are more kind of voracious learners than others. And I feel that that perception, and I call it a perception because I don't actually think it's true. I feel like it's fueled by the fact that there are many marketing leaders who rightfully so are focused more on learning how to be good leaders of people than they are on learning how to do marketing. And those are different types of learning. And very often in larger companies, you find the leaders who have to focus on learning how to be a leader and less on learning how to do marketing because their job is really to hire the people who are good marketers and to just lead them well, right? Whereas I have lived in the startup world where you've got to be both. <laughs> um, you know, you don't have a big enough team to not be able to not to have the luxury of not focusing on continuously learning about how to be a great marketer. Um, so, I mean, I guess that's my answer. And then the, the corollary to that is also that I do think even those large company marketers, they're still learning about marketing. They're just doing it differently. And a lot of it is happening in these peer-to-peer -peer networks. I, I like that idea. And I, it's, it's really, and I, I totally agree. This whole like learning to be a leader is an entirely separate skill set of its, in and of itself. I think what I, one thing I've seen on, on, yeah, like I think there's looking around and seeing what other people are doing and kind of being open to kind of change. But I think going back to the thing that we started talking about, which was just the change that is occurring within the industry. That's from a leadership point of view, that's challenging because especially if you've always seen it being done a certain way or particularly because I know you've advised for companies, a lot of the times they'll say, well, you need to be doing these things. Here's the things that you should be focusing on. You need a demand gen function. You need to generate leads. You need to be focused on pipeline. So there's a lot of top down, I guess, like old perceptions of how teams should be structured and what they should be focused on. And then you've got the conversations that are happening on LinkedIn, where the it feels like everything's changing all of the time, and then I've I've I have to come around to the realization that the playbooks that I used to be told were great five years ago, I would be embarrassed to use now because they're so fundamentally wrong. I was talking about lead nurturing, I was talking about MQLs, and now I'm looking at them going like, like what what has changed? As you're, do you hire for that? Like as a leader, if you're if you're farther removed and you're more focused on the leadership aspect, which tends to happen as you get into bigger size companies, like as you're hiring for functions, like how do you make sure you're building that adaptability into your team? Yeah. And again, I, it does go back a little bit to, at least in my experience, the big company versus the, the startup situation. Whereas I think in larger companies, what you often find is you're hiring for people who've already done it once, right? Yeah. Like the larger the company gets, the less risk tolerant they are in hiring. And so they, they, and I've been interviewed for these roles. Like I've lost plenty of CMO roles to companies who look at me and say, you haven't taken a company to a hundred million dollars and we will right. only hire someone who's done that before. Right. And as they should, there's, you know, many times there's a lot more at stake. And so they're, they're not, hiring for that intangible of how does this person think about marketing they're hiring for show me you've done it before because that increases the odds you will do it again um where where i think you see more of the challenge you're alluding to is in the startup stage where very often you can't compete financially with the larger companies in terms of compensation packages and so you know yes you can hire people who've done it before 
But you also need to be nimble and sometimes open yourself up to somebody who hasn't done it before. And how do you, you know, if you don't have that as your your rubric for determining whether they're right for the role, how are you evaluating them? And for me, then it comes down to, okay, how do you think about marketing? You know, like, and that's why I ask, how do you learn? Because sometimes it's not just the fact that they are continuing to learn. It's the resources they're relying on. Like one of the people I hired um, recently, who's awesome in his interview, told me, you know, he's a member of DGMG, Dave Gerhardt's group, and he listens to Chris Walker's podcast. And I was like, awesome. Like, at least that shows me that he's somebody who's kind of interested in those approaches. And it doesn't mean it didn't mean like that got him the job at all. It just sort of gave me a sense for his mindset and the type of content he's consuming. And so that led us down a path of questioning that might have been like a little different than somebody else who was like, oh, I just read marketing textbooks, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, so I do think there's this large company versus startup challenge of, you know, if you're, hi- if you're not going to be able to hire purely for track record, how do you suss out whether that person's going to be the right person for the job? That's great advice. As a marketing leader, do you have any advice on how you make sure that you're receptive to people on your team being able to go, that's that's kind of an old way of thinking about it? Like, how do you allow them to bubble that up and shake you out of your old mindsets? Yeah, I mean, you'll see a recurring theme in all my answers. It's about like communication and expectation settings. And so one of the things that I have done in, in the last few years is I've built out what I call kind of a guide to Kathleen. And I actually think it might have been Dave Gerhardt that gave me this idea in the first place. And it's like a 12-page document. That is, I've added to it over time. It's a big brain dump of how I think and how I like to manage teams and the culture I'm trying to build in marketing. And, you know, in there, I make it very clear that I want people who are going to push back, who are going to question um, that I, you know, have strong ideas loosely held, which basically means I have a lot of opinions, but I'm totally willing to be wrong. And, you know, and that I'm going to evaluate my team on the degree to which they push back. Um, and so I, I talk about that very early in the first one-on-one with people. And they get that document about me before they even start working here. It's like the last interview I tend to share it because I want people who are going to be willing to work with a person like I am. And I feel like I want to give them a fair shot at understanding who, who that person is. So, um, you know, I think it starts with that. And then it, it honestly, it all comes down to how do you respond when it happens? Like when, when somebody first gets up the courage to say to you, actually, I disagree with that. You have, that's your window where you either make or break the culture of your team. And you have to, you have to be open to it and welcoming to it. And give people the space to disagree in a way that feels productive. I, I strongly agree with that, actually. And I, I've found, like, I, I've always thought of myself as kind of, you know, I, I think a lot of times I, I, my imposter syndrome comes from the realization that I have to remember that as nice as I think I am, having SVP in my title can be intimidating to people on my team, particularly yeah. people who report to people who report into me. And I have to respect the fact that I... I need to get them past that sometimes. So I have to be proactive in making sure that they know you can give me feedback. I need you to know that you're able to. And I, I think I like that proactive guide to Kathleen. I remember reading about that, which is like, I think you help seed that early so they know what they're getting. But I think I've definitely had to remind people that like, I want you to be able to feel comfortable giving me this kind of feedback. Yeah. 
And I think a lot of times initially that feedback happens sometimes in small channels. Like I, I find it doesn't often happen in the middle of like team meetings because people are intimidated to do that in front of others. And so it's your one-on-ones, it's your Slack DMs. Those are the places where you need to cultivate that that safe space for people to to call you out and question your thinking and to reward them. Like for me, it's like not just about not reacting negatively. It's about showering them with positivity when they do it and saying, yep. thank you. Oh my gosh, I love that you did this um, and reinforcing that as much as you can. Yeah, I love that. So I want to switch to one last thing before I let you go, which is, you know, you were talking about sort of like not resting on your laurels. And I feel like there is a lot of that. There are playbooks that have worked and you just run them and run them and run them. And a lot of people come in and, and rely on that. When you think about being like, because you talk a lot about this, like the fundamentals and really kind of like the, the original sort of going back to basics about what is, why does marketing work the way it does? Like, as you come in, like, how do you, do you have a rubric of like how you ask these questions? Like, what do you, what do you dig for before you decide to run a play? Boy, I mean, I wish I had a really good answer for that. I don't think I have a, a like a, a scripted kind of response, but I would say I am a big fan in general of um, first principles thinking, which, you know, I read about, I first read about that with reference to Elon Musk and it's just really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, You know, like, I mean, stripping things away and, and basically always asking why and why are we doing it that way? Like, okay, you just wrote that subject line. Why are you writing it that way? Like what, what was the thinking behind why you wrote that. And a lot of times what you'll hear, hear, people, ah, hear people say is, oh, that's just the way I've always done it. Or, oh, you know, it, it seemed like that made sense. And, and, and I think um, questioning people to start to dig down and, and uncover those deeper layers is really powerful. So like, um, you know, not only we'll talk about email subject lines, why did you write it that way? Um, why, like when you get emails, do you tend to respond to subject to subject lines like that? Um, you know, why do you feel like you need to use sentence case in your subject lines? Would you would you write that way if you were writing to, like one on one to somebody? And are you more likely to open an email that's sent to you one on one than you are from a company? Why do you think that is? How can we emulate that more? Like starting to strip away and mm-hmm. and 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 it, you may wind up with an answer that reinforces the initial decision that was made and be like, okay, yeah, totally makes sense. Great answers or you get people to look at things in a different way. Um, and so I think to me, I don't know, that's that's how I like to think I approach these things. I'm probably not as consistent as I should be, but um, you know, I, I, questioning the status quo is super important and testing, you know, coming to decisions about playbooks through testing also, you know, with subject lines, we just had this conversation recently here. Should we use a more formal subject line or a more informal one? Well, do an A-B test, let's find out. Actually, I think it's a stellar answer. And I love the question everything thing. The thing I, I've struggled with and I've seen leaders struggle with is how do you do that in a way that doesn't feel like you're challenging people or putting them on the spot to go like, well, why is it like, where does that questioning take place in a way that's productive? Yeah. Um, so I think it can take place in a team environment if you build the right culture. And in fact, that's, something that you need to really, you need to be very deliberate about. And so in my guide to Kathleen, I do talk about like, I want people sharing 
everything they do in our team Slack. And we have like just the marketing team in a Slack. And, um, and I had this conversation last week because my team has been here for just slightly under a month. And they were like, well, should I share these drafts? And I'm like, yes, you should share everything because not only does that help keep us all informed about what other people are doing, but we'll learn a lot from each other. Like the way Matt writes subject lines is totally different than the way Charlotte does. It's totally different than the way Shannon does. So let's share all that we're doing and the results. And like, let's figure out like who's getting responses. And, um, you know, and by the way, strip away the pride of ownership. And I need to do the same thing. Like, let's all share our work and be open to getting feedback because it's going to make us better. And the best trait you can have in any job is really being open to that kind of feedback and being quick to internalize it. So like the kind of person that I think is most successful on the teams I manage is the one who's open to hearing about all of it, who, who likes to be challenged and who quickly internalizes that feedback and then doesn't do that same thing again, right? Like you immediately see it reflected in their work. That's, that's the kind of person who's going to go so far so fast in any kind of job. I, I love that. And I think that actually is a really good way of summing it up. Like it really is culture. It is an environment in which you're able to do these things as opposed to, you know, what you tend, what you can see in startups where sometimes you're moving too fast. Sometimes there's too much going on. Sometimes there's lots of pressure to kind of be delivering very quickly. And it feels like it's a lot of a leader's job to make sure that you're providing a space where that can actually occur, where you can stop to question stuff. Yeah, and I would just add, I, I would be remiss if I didn't say like, you have to model it too. So like I need to share my stuff and and be open to people catching errors and making it better. And I need to show like gratitude for that and be vulnerable in a group setting so that others know that it's okay for them to feel the same way. Yeah. Yeah. And I I I think you do a stellar job of it. I I certainly learn from everything that you write on there. I think it, you know, like being vulnerable is tough in a leadership position because it can make you feel like you're undermining your own authority or you're sort of showing weakness. But I, I think this seems to be a growing movement where that is teams look up to that. They respond to that. They they respect that. And I think that that it's important for leaders to be showing more of that externally. Yeah, totally agree. It's hard. It can be scary to do it, um, but it certainly pays a lot of dividends. Yes, I agree. Well, I think that is a wonderful place to leave it. This was a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate it. I always learn so much when I get to hear from you and even more when I get to talk to you. Um, I am a better marketer for this conversation. Oh, you are so sweet. And this was a lot of fun. And I'm glad we had a chance to talk because I love seeing the stuff that you share online as well. And following your journey has been a ton of fun. I appreciate that. Well, thank you so much, Kathleen. Thanks, Liam.